from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I think in this group, what you're seeing is what we would call an in-group, out-group bias. Most of us have multiple in-groups, right? If you're a parent, you might view other parents as an in-group member, other members of your profession, other community members. Um, they see the experts as out-group members. They don't necessarily share their, their values, their background, their experience, their education. I'm Sarah Fenske. Last winter, many of us assumed vaccines would be easy. The big question seemed like who would get them first, right? We just assumed everybody was eager to get in line and get their shot. Well, how wrong we were. And with kids newly approved for the Pfizer vaccine, it's worth looking at the lessons from last time around. There are plenty of reasons to be cautious about anything that's brand new. So what can public health officials do to overcome hesitancy as another big population group is now vaccine eligible? Molly Wilson is a professor at St. Louis University School of Law. She has long explored how patterns of human decision-making influence and should influence law and policy. She's recently studied vaccine hesitancy, and she joins us today to discuss what she's learned. So Molly Wilson, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, so many parents have a big decision to make right now. Get their kid vaccinated or not. What are some of the different camps you see as parents are sort of deciding how to deal with this issue? Well, I think, of course, as you mentioned, many parents are very, very eager, uh, myself included. I've been <laughs> waiting for one of my own kiddos um, to get their children uh, vaccinated. So that's certainly a significant group, which is great. So no doubt, like, let's go do this. That's group A. Exactly. And then I think there's another group that is still deciding. Um, and I think we saw this with the adult population making decisions about themselves as well. Um, they have, uh, I would call these uh, vaccine hesitant. Um, they, it's not that they're opposed, but they want to know more information. They might want to see other people getting vaccinated or having their children get uh, vaccinated to see sort of what the outcomes are. And then I think there's a third group that um, is sort of reactant against the idea of vaccines um, and will and will state that they will never have their children vaccinated. And I, the latest number that I heard was roughly 30%, which is concerning. Yeah, that seems like a pretty high number right there. Yes. So we know, um, you know, as far as trying to persuade people to get vaccinated, you don't have to worry about that group A. They're already in line. They're fighting for those limited appointments. They're getting that done. We have these other two camps. Do you handle these two camps differently? I, I think you do. Um, in terms of uh, the first camp, the, the camp that uh, wants to do what's best for their children in terms of keeping their children healthy, but have some concerns about uh, the vaccine. I think there are certain um, psychological biases that we see in that group that we can address. So uh, I research biases, which are sort of irrational thought patterns and ways of forming attitudes. And I think that particular group, there are specific biases to that group that we can kind of try to address to it to um, calm their concerns. Um, with the second group that says never, I will never um, get my child vaccinated, and probably they are not vaccinated themselves, um, there's a different set of biases. And so we would call that psychological reactance, which basically is grounded in this idea that they are reacting against a perceived threat to their freedom to make choices. And the more they're pushed to make certain kinds of health choices, the more um, 
sort of uh, stubbornly, they're going to probably maintain their position. So with that group that, um, you know, kind of has their backup, it might not even make sense to try to like have this very serious conversation about here's what I think you should do. That's right. And I think actually this group is most um, resistant to hearing the messages from the experts. Mm. So um, I actually think that hearing um, sort of uh, expert opinion, public health experts, um, epidemiologists talk about this, I actually think that can be counterproductive for that group. Because they feel like they're being pushed. They feel like they're being pushed. They feel like experts uh, perceive themselves as sources of authority, which can be um, can cause more entrenchment and greater a greater amount of reactance. I mean, aren't experts sources of authority? That's what makes them experts. Well, I I would agree with you. However, um, I think in this group, what you're seeing is uh, sort of what we would call sort of an in-group, out-group bias. So we all have, uh, most of us have multiple in-groups, right? If you're a parent, you might view other parents as an in-group member. If you're a professional, other members of your profession is an an in-group member. In your community, other community members are in-group members. Um, and so for, for many people, I think, who are reacting against this push, um, encourage strong encouragement to, to get children vaccinated, um, they see the experts as outgroup members. Okay. They, they don't necessarily share their, their values, their background, their experience, their education. Um, so I, I think in that situation, that can actually um, create even more reactants. Hmm. That actually explains a lot to me as I'm thinking about this past year. Let's go to this group of people who are hesitant. You know, they want to do the right thing. They're kind of feeling things out. This seems like the group that might be right for the picking if you're a public health professional. What can be done that's persuasive to them? Well, I think the first thing is to understand where the hesitancy is coming from. Mm-hmm. So as an initial matter, um, it, it, there's lots of data to show that things that are novel, new, unfamiliar, and uncommon are, cause fear, right? So even novel therapies and treatments that seem really promising because they seem from all the data like they have really important beneficial effects um, can be concerning to people mm-hmm. who, who don't have experience in maybe how a vaccine is developed, how it works in the body. Most of us don't understand that. Um, so even though it seems like there's overwhelming evidence that it could be very positive, um, this group feels like it's unknown. They don't understand it, um, and therefore they fear they they feel fearful about Mm -hmm. it. I mean, that makes sense. And, you know, there's been a long history of for every medical advance, there are sometimes big steps back. Things go wrong. You know, there's a a core of rationality there. And yet, you know, we're coming out of something that has been tested and, and the kids in this testing group did so well. So knowing that this is where that group is coming from psychologically, how do you begin to to talk to them about something like this? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. First of all, there's an adaptive, just sort of evolutionarily adaptive um, aspect to this, right? I mean, our ancient ancestors, if they just ran around eating new things that they didn't have any experience with, you know, they would get really sick and sometimes they would probably die. So new things, being fearful and hesitant about new things is not totally irrational. Um, But I think that... um, 
getting information to people is really important. That's something we've definitely seen. I think it's also about how you frame the question. Mm -hmm. So um, things are new. They seem risky to begin with. Explaining that we now have a lot of data is really important. And then flipping it around and framing the question or the decision about risk in terms of not getting the vaccine, I think, can be really helpful. So there's been a lot of focus on the vaccine and talking about how low the risk is, efficacy and low risk of side effects. But I think it would be helpful to frame the problem in terms of the risk is about not getting vaccinated, right? Hmm. So that the really risky decision is is foregoing the vaccine. And so if I'm a risk-averse person, I'm not the, the ancestor who's running around plucking up new foods. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, it's more dangerous to stay here and stay put than it is to try this new thing. That's right. And there's another sort of psychological bias that's very robust. There's lots of data on it called the status quo bias. So when people are in a situation of uncertainty and they see two risky situations, the one that caused that that would require them to take action is usually the one that's they're more fearful of. I get that. Right. And so it feels intuitively right, but it's really really problematic in a situation where what we need people to do in order to lower their risk is to take action and take specific steps to do something to protect themselves and their children. Yeah. So what do you do in that case if somebody's almost just frozen a little bit? Well, I think you can do some things that we've seen work in other situations. Um, For example, companies have long been concerned about the fact that people don't save enough for retirement. And so there's been um, an an effort to put people into opt-out situations. Mm. So you opt, as soon as they get employment, they come into a a position, you put them in a retirement savings account and they have to opt out of it. I think there's an opportunity to do some clever things with maybe uh, things that we, as far as I know, we haven't tried yet, some creative solutions. Like, for example, maybe giving children appointments for vaccines and having the parents opt out if they would prefer not to have their child vaccinated. It feels like that could really backfire with somebody who's in this third group who is mad and they feel pushed. But for somebody who's in this hesitant group, that could sort of force them. They'd have to proactively stop this train that's kind of moving. Yeah, that's right. And this this sounds a little bit crazy, but I think parents, um, you know, if you ask a lot of parents, they would rather make a bad decision for themselves than for their children, mm-hmm. right? There's this sense that, you know, at all costs, you should protect your children, which is really great. Um, but I think no parent wants to be the agent that puts them, their child in a risky situation. However, if... We have schools, which have been long been places that parents have trusted, um, you know, that their child will be well cared for and will get have a good experience. If we have the schools implementing this program and then the parents have to actively opt out, mm-hmm. right, um, I think that that will sort of change the way parents think about that risk choice. It's interesting. I feel like my pediatrician kind of does this already. Like they'll be like, hey, your kid is turning two. They're scheduled to get this and that. And of course, you can say no, but it's kind of like this is on the schedule. And so this would just be a way of of doing this um, for older kids, maybe through a school district. 
Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I was thinking about the example, too, of you go to your doctor or your dentist, and when you get, um, when you leave, they often want to sign you up for your next checkup, mm-hmm. right? It's like, and then you've got a call to cancel it if you're not going to come in. It's right there on your calendar. You yeah. kind of end up just going for it. That's right. Well, we're curious to hear if you're dealing with somebody who's vaccine hesitant, what advice might be useful for you? Tell us a little bit about your scenario. Our phone lines are open at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. We heard from ML who writes, any tips on how to counteract the avalanche of misinformation that folks receive via Facebook's algorithm, which doesn't care if you're getting the truth so long as you spend more time on Facebook? (laughs) Kind of a a good point there in that question. Yeah, and that that actually brings up another point, which is that people make decisions based upon what is um, social psychologists and cognitive psychologists say cognitively available. So that's just a way of expressing the idea that when you're making a decision about what's risky, you think of examples. And the example that comes to your head first is usually the one that you go with, right? So the classic example is if you ask somebody how risky it is to fly in a commercial airplane, They overestimate, vastly overestimate the risk involved with that. It's not that they think it's terribly risky, but they're still overestimating the risk. And Mm -hmm. so researchers have explained that by saying everybody remembers hearing about a plane crash, a commercial plane crash. It's incredibly salient, very vivid, horrifying. And so because it comes into your mind more quickly than it really should have based on, you know, the real world incident of that kind of plane crash, um, you overestimate, you overweight it. I, I think that's what's happening now with some of this misinformation, especially since some of it is so disturbing, right? That doesn't make it accurate. It just makes it memorable and sort of horrifying. So things like, the vaccine rearranges your DNA mm-hmm. uh, or causes skin lesions or all sorts of things that are just patently untrue, but they're so vivid and memorable that people think of them. If we can replace that, those um, uh, sort of thoughts with other thoughts that are positive, like examples of vaccine drives that have been really positive where lo- hundreds of people have been vaccinated, um, situations where people have been at high risk, maybe exposed to COVID, but because they're vaccinated, they don't uh, develop serious symptoms. Um, if we can replace the misinformation with positive, good information, especially depicting it in really vivid and memorable ways through narratives, perhaps, uh, that might be one helpful strategy. We're talking today to Molly Wilson. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. She's um, studied vaccine hesitancy, has some great tips here on how to deal with this and what public health officials could be doing, what we could be doing. Um, I'm going to go to the phone lines. Dr. Ken Haller is calling us. Um, uh, Dr. Haller, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, Sarah. I just uh, wanted to thank Dr. Wilson for her her comments today. Um, uh, you know, Sarah, when I heard this about vaccine hesitancy, I had to call in. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I think, know that's your topic. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what you, everything you're saying is, is really excellent. The one thing I would add is that as a pediatrician on the front lines, to start that conversation with a hesitant parent, uh, validating the emotion is really important. If I can say to them, 
you know, I can see you're scared. This is very scary. I've heard these scary things, too. This shows me how much you love your child. That really gets the conversation going and shows them that I'm taking their, their concerns seriously, and then we can move forward with the, uh, you know, with the facts. Uh, Molly, is that maybe a way to keep somebody who's in that second group where they're on the fence from moving into that third group where they have their back up and they feel like people are attacking them to sort of come in with that, that good bedside manner that the, the good doctor has? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think pediatricians can play such an important role um, to to humanize the situation, not to take a sort of authoritarian approach. Um, You know, sharing personal stories. Many pediatricians are parents themselves if if they have school-age children to say, um, you know, I I get it. Um, And, you know, like you, I want to do the best that I can for my children to keep them safe. And this is why I made the decision. Um, to to vaccinate my children and, and and getting others involved as well, just sort of if there are people who have a connection with individuals and share similar situations and can say, I went through this decision process. It was hard for me too. This is why I decided to go ahead with a vaccine. Hmm. Dr. Holler, are you seeing at this point that your parents are pretty excited about enlisting their kids or are you feeling more of that hesitancy? I'm, well, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of both. Actually, I've had a lot of parents who have been uh, really eager to get this vaccine, uh, you know, for the 5 to 12-year-olds, and we've had a lot of teenagers who've gotten vaccinated. On the other hand, as Professor Wilson was saying, I've had some parents who who have said, I just don't want to hear about it. I don't Mm want to talk about it. But as she mentioned earlier, these are people who are already in that group, that uh, that I never will do that group. And uh, in terms of just sort of general vaccine denial, about 2 to 3 percent of parents, I just, they're just not ever going to do it. And I just move on from there. Uh, but but those there is that movable group, that larger movable group that uh, if we can, you know, if I can acknowledge that the emotions are real, even if I feel that the facts they're based on are completely non-existent, if I can acknowledge the, uh, the reality and the validity of those emotions, then we can move toward the facts. Dr. Holler, thank you for sharing that perspective. It's great to hear from somebody on the front lines dealing with this. So Molly Wilson, with what you've studied and what you know about this now, if I'm a parent and my best Best friend is a parent and they're on the fence. What would be your recommendation of how to have that conversation where I can actually do it in an effective way and not push her into something that would be bad? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, not coming off as being um, in any way sort of superior or um, or overbearing about it, not being judgmental. I think that is incredibly important. Understanding and acknowledging, um, as the doctor said, that this is a process, that um, that parents are being thoughtful about it, and the fact that a parent is being thoughtful about it does not mean that the parent is a bad parent. It means that the parent is a good parent. Um, and then I think one strategy um, sort of to circle back to what we started with was this unfamiliarity is is often where the fear starts. And so just anecdotally in talking to um, some parents who have had concerns about getting vaccines for their children, um, I've tried to equate it to um, other vaccinations that that parents are very used to getting, right? Just routinely accept. and at the very beginning of the pandemic, it was it was not like those vaccines in the sense that we didn't have as much information. We hadn't had testing um, uh, and, and approval. But now we we have it. Um, and so trying to normalize the covid vaccine by equating it with something that's familiar and comfortable and sort of routine for parents, I think, can be really helpful.
So those seem like very helpful tips, but you know, I've only got maybe a couple people in my life who listen to me. What would you say to public health officials? I mean, it feels like there were a lot of missed opportunities last time around. If you were in charge of all this, I don't know that there is any one person in charge of all this, but what's something that you would do on you know the, the bigger picture here? Yeah, again, I, I think the messaging is really important. Um, I think hearing public health officials um, sort of getting help, soliciting help from other folks in the community can be really helpful. Um, bringing uh, the vaccine into places that are familiar for people, ease, obviously we want to remove barriers, but to go I- even a step further, um, and bringing the vaccine into school buildings and making those opportunities available, bringing it into where where pastors, um, rabbis, priests are are willing, bringing it into places of worship, I think is really helpful. And I think it's helpful for multiple reasons. I think uh, not only does it make it much easier to, to just to access um, the vaccine, but it also provides an opportunity for, again, people to see members of their important in-group, right? Um, parents who send their children to the same schools, people who worship in the same places, um, going ahead and getting those vaccines for themselves and for their children. And I think that that can be incredibly persuasive. At that point, you don't feel like you're out on a limb. You're there doing what other good parents do. Yeah, that's right. And um, psychologists often talk about uh, herd behavior and groupthink, and it's usually used in a negative way. Um, But I think that it can have positive effects as as well, right? If something becomes sort of a social norm, most people in whatever your important uh, in-group that you identify with is doing something, particularly with respect to protecting children, I think that can be really compelling. Hmm. Well, there's a lot here that I think is important for people to think about, and I hope that the people who are handling this rollout are paying attention to this advice. Molly Wilson, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Evie Hemphill with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.